This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. In our second episode of the Podcast Takeover series, we're delving into the depths of technological futurity. Over the next hour, we'll imagine possible utopian and dystopian technological futures and explore how tech creates and warns about the possibilities that it engineers. We'll take a trip into the intergalactic realm to think about how science fiction depicts the interaction between intelligent life elsewhere in the galaxy and human, well, we'll call it intelligence for now. And we'll think about how the next generation of technologists are understanding the futures that they will help to build. Our first segment features Dr. Rachel Robison Green in an interview where she discusses how imagined technological dystopians interact with and provide us insight into human values. Today, my team and I will be talking to Dr. Rachel Robison Green. She is an assistant professor of philosophy at Utah State University, and she earned her PhD in philosophy at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Her research interests include nature of personhood and the self, animal minds and animal ethics, environmental ethics, and ethics and technology. She's the editor of 12 books on popular culture and philosophy, including the forthcoming The Handmaid's Tale and Philosophy. She's also the co-host of the popular culture and philosophy podcast, I Think, Therefore, I Fan. Hello, Dr. Robinson Green. Thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us. Previously, my team and I were researching the importance of technological dystopias in society and technology. This is when we came across our article, What Technological Dystopias Can Tell Us About Human Values. This article discussed how technology development can lead to dystopian living conditions. In addition to this, you discussed how various forms of popular culture can illustrate the impacts that technology development can have on society. Could you share a bit more about what made you interested in studying the intersections of technology and popular culture? Sure. I recently edited a collection of papers on philosophical themes in Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale and Philosophy, as you mentioned. And so I wanted to see what this had in common with other dystopian novels. So to prepare for editing that book, I either reviewed or read for the first time classic dystopian works of literature such as 1984, Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451. And it was an interesting contrast with the fact that I was at the same time watching Black Mirror. So I was struck by the fact that dystopian themes tend to be the same through the decades because I think the explanation for that is that they're expressive of fundamental human values. And and so even the, the works like 1984 and Fahrenheit 451 and, and, and those that are older contain some element of futuristic technology. So Brave New World has these incubation pods and Soma tablets and Fahrenheit 451 has wall-sized television screens that can address the viewer by name. But in more recent popular culture, we see explorations of these human values in bold new ways. And, and I've been interested in that. So in your article, What Technological Dystopias Can Tell Us About Human Values, you discussed and defined the terms dystopia and utopia. Could you explain more about how technological dystopias and utopias present themselves in popular culture? Sure. Well, I honestly don't think that we almost ever encounter utopias in popular culture because that would be boring, right? They're not very exciting. In a perfect society, there wouldn't be much by way of strife or conflict. But dystopias you see all over the landscape, on television, in movies, uh, in books, obviously. But I do think there's a way in which we see some utopian element in popular culture, because I think that that's supposed to sort of be the backdrop of most dystopian literature, is that, okay, society made choices that led to a dystopia, but they're believing that they're actually trying to create a, a utopia. They're believing they're trying to at last find the solutions to enduring human problems. But what they often learn is that in solving the problem, they abandon some critical hum human value. 
So for example, it's common, it's a common theme that thinking for oneself, figuring out what to do is hard work. So you see in, in books like 1984, what if the government could do it for us? or at least limit the sources of potential knowledge in the form of books or whatever, so the ordeal wouldn't be so complicated. Of course, this doesn't go well, because difficult as it is, the individual practice of reasoning about what to think and what to do is part of what makes life meaningful. And the same is true with happiness. What if, we, what if the government could just provide citizens with happiness so we didn't have to, to get it ourselves? But again, it turns out that the pursuit of happiness and not just happiness itself is part of what makes human life meaningful. Um, and I think technological dystopias in popular culture address our values in even more fundamental ways. Like, what is it to be human? Are our flaws frustrating inconveniences or do they contribute to who we are? So in Black Mirror, for example, you see explorations of questions like, what if our memories were perfect? You know, and that there's actually several episodes about that. And it's it's you end up feeling as, at the end of those episodes like, oh, thank goodness our memories aren't perfect. Right. Uh, so and, and then there are questions like. Does love and care require consciousness and personhood? If we could achieve our needs for love and companionship from technology rather than from conscious persons, would that be a good thing or would be, we be giving something important up? So you also mentioned that um, fictional utopias in your article, what purpose do fictional utopias and dystopias actually serve intellectually? And to what degree do you think is useful towards our society? I think they're really important. Uh, I think they present us with descriptions of what are unfortunately sometimes quite close possible worlds in which the things we care about the most, the very things that make life worth living as human beings are at stake. So, and, and in these stories, it, that often happens because we've created institutions or technology that take the process of self-creation out of the hands of the people. And, and that can obviously happen in more than one way. Okay, so with your view on utopian and dystopian societies, which concepts from Black Mirror episodes do you think are already upon us, the closest to occurring, and which is the most far-fetched? Well, okay, I'm going to struggle to remember every Black Mirror episode, and especially since um, they've been so spaced out over time, right? We just have to, the viewers are left waiting and hoping for more episodes. But, um, so I guess, uh, I think some episodes, I mean, some of the, mo the episodes in the most recent season were actually set in the past uh, with technology that we, we have, right? So, or that we're very close to having. So I, so the episode Striking Viper, right? About the, the man who gets this video game and basically kindles a romance with his best friend, uh, even though they're, they're both either married or in relationships out, out you know, outside of the video game. Um, I think that's, not just could happen, but is happening. Um, and so like, so it causes us to think about the nature of human relationships and intimacy and things like that. Um, and, and questions about sexuality and, and what it means to have a particular sexual orientation. Right. Um, uh, so, uh, another one that stands out to me is the episode nosedive, which I'm guessing that is a fan favorite. So this is the episode, um, about the social credit system. Right. Um, and this actually, I'm the coach of the Utah State Ethics Bowl team, and we actually had a case about um, the Chinese social credit system. Right. So this is already is something that's happening in China. And you might even say that this is something that has been happening for a long time, just maybe in a more limited way in the United States in the form of uh, the credit rating system. OK, awesome. And as a follow up to that question, do you think there are any contemporary technologies that would be suitable for exploration in a dystopian society that Black Mirror has not yet addressed? Sure. And listeners will just have to forgive me if I list something that actually is present in a Black Mirror episode, because those episodes are so rich and so full of really interesting material that I just might not be remembering. But recently I've written on the ethics of um, essentially technology doing the job of human beings, the jobs of human beings, and, and this question about what kinds of work is work that we want to, we, we kind of want to not have technology do, right? That we think will only be meaningful work if it's done by human beings, or maybe there is no such work, but let me, I'll, I'll just provide a couple of examples. So um, there have been a handful of instances of robot priests, and you might think that um, religious care work uh, done by priests is the kind of work that maybe needs to be done by a person, needs to be done by 
a being that can understand a person's spiritual journey, right? Um, understands the struggles that a person might go through and how to help them out of those struggles in their path toward whatever religious goals or personal goals they might have. Uh, and so it seems like it might be, it, it rings a little dystopian to have that done by, by a robot. Uh, we we're also seeing increasingly um, robot healthcare providers, and there are pros and cons to this. Um, so in many cases, a robot healthcare provider might be more uh, affordable for say an elderly patient than a full, uh, full-time live-in um, nurse. Right. But at the same time, you might think that healthcare work is the kind of work that should be done by a human being, again, that can understand pain and that can understand the needs of the patient and what the patient might be feeling. Um, robot sex workers, obviously. Um, and now, in light of uh, COVID 19, I think questions about digital uh, forms of education are really interesting. And I think, again, uh, dystopian stories and dystopian television shows like Black Mirror say, look, okay, here's how it's going now, but if it were just a little bit different from that, we get something totally terrible. And I hope we're not on a tor totally terrible timeline in our current world. <laughs> and I also think um, uh, deep fakes, right? We're seeing the rise of deep fake technology where you can, uh, where you can basically convince people that uh, someone is speaking or uh, engaging in a behavior that they're not really engaging in because it's so easy to, to sort of simulate a person um, engaging in that behavior visually. So there was the famous case of the, the doctored uh, video of Nancy Pelosi and so on. Uh, and then there's like CGI casting in movies. So recently a film cast J a long deceased James Dean in the role uh, in, a, in a new role in a movie, and they're just basically going to revive him through the practice of CGI. And I can imagine these things, if they're not going wrong enough in the world in which we inhabit, we can imagine them going really, really wrong in a close possible dystopian world. Yeah, those are really great points. I hope to see some more Black Mirror episodes with some of those technologies. Yeah. What does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean to you in terms of the advancements of the tech industry? Is this an important concept that is intertwined with utopian and dystopian societies? Sure. Yeah, I think diversity, equity, and inclusion are very important in advancements of the tech industry. Uh, and we, we need ideas coming from diverse perspectives, right? This is how I think the best kinds of innovation can happen and the kinds of innovation that will really reflect um, the, the needs and the values of the community as a whole. So, uh, and I, I think, yes, issues of uh, gender and race frequently make their way into dystopian stories. I mean, just look at The Handmaid's Tale. That's, it's a dystopian story about gender. Uh, so, and when, when it makes its way into these stories, it's often as an attempt to warn us about what kinds of even further so social stratification might happen if we're not careful. So uh, you briefly touched on it earlier, but I'd like to get a little bit more about it. In your article, you discussed utopian ideals and the dystopias that can spawn from such ideals. And I think the Black Mirror episode nosedive is answering the question of what if social media could create a social hierarchy based on our interactions? Uh, do you think that the prevalence of social media in our culture is leading us down a similar path or somewhere different entirely? Oh, I, I definitely think it's leading us down a similar path, but I do think these issues are complicated. Uh, so I wanna be careful in my answer here. I mean, I think that we experience, um, one of the things we experience on social media is cancel culture. Uh, and, and cancel culture has certain important functions, right? Like holding people accountable. Uh, that said, I've my son, I have a, 15 year old son who you know uses tiktok and, and other kinds of apps and he'll show me just these aggressive and vicious takedowns of people uh for kind of minor transgressions um on social media that might just that, that might just devastate the self-esteem of people so i'm picturing what happens to the main character over the course of the episode nosedive where she's just uh just diminished and diminished and diminished, but then actually kind of gained some power at the end, which, which maybe isn't consistent with the story I'm telling here. But, but I do think that this kind of like internet bullying that you see in response to uh, behaviors on social media and the, 
the idea that people can't learn and grow from their mistakes and that they deserve to to be canceled or whatever um, is 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 something that that I do think is kind of similar to what happens in in nosedive. Yeah, thank you. I think that was it's very timely. And uh, for the next question, I, I think it's clear that science fiction as a genre has affected the course of technological advances. But in your opinion, what responsibility do you think that creators of this media have to people that consume their creations? I guess my initial thought in response to that is to say, I, I, I think it's dangerous to, to say that the creators of science fiction have certain kinds of obligations to only tell certain kinds of stories. I mean, I think that the whole point of telling stories is to get people to think, right? And and to and, and it, maybe they might have aggressive negative response to what's being written, or they might say, "We don't want that to happen, so we're gonna we're gonna change our course or whatever." Um, I don't think that science fiction writers are saying, "Here's you know here's a dystopia, and by writing this dystopia I'm tr- or or science, piece of science fiction or whatever, I'm trying to get you to agree with the set of values that's being put forward in it." I think they're always just thought experiments, right? And uh, I think most literature is this way. Here's something to think about. And so I, I don't think we should be calling on science fiction writers to limit the kinds of things we should be thinking about. Um, although I, I do see that there might, going back to the inclusion question, there might be something like a call to, a, a moral call to diversify science fiction, right? So that there are a wider range of people writing it. And so instead of, limiting the number of stories we're going to think about, we expand it. So in your article, you describe the definitions of utopias and dystopias and how dystopias are created as a result of making an effort to create a utopian society. To what extent do you think we have already entered a dystopian society? And if so, what steps do you think we can take to fix it? I don't think that we've made much by way of an effort to create a utopian society. So in, in, in the cases that I've described, you know, 1984 and Brave New World, they have actually attempted to do something along those lines. But I don't want to be committed to the idea that our culture has even tried. <laughs> so, but but then to the second bit of the question, uh, to what extent do you think we've actually already entered a dystopian society? Uh, well, I, I'd say the thing that stands out to me is um, this, um, the distrust of the media and the mass spread of misinformation on the internet uh, is just kind of leading to a climate in which um, there are, we've lost track of established standards for evaluating what counts as good evidence. And people are just um, encouraged by their sense of tribalism to just find the bits of information that confirm what they were already inclined to believe anyway. And so it seems like technology in the, you know, and the internet in particular, insofar as it leads to this mass spread of misinformation, um, has made the pursuit of truth seem less valuable to many human beings. And I think that's really troubling. Uh, but in terms of what steps we, we can take to fix it, I'll admit I have no idea. Um, because on the other hand, I think this is a very complicated moral issue. On the other hand, I think that, um, that, as I mentioned before, in response to the question about science fiction writers, uh, free speech is really important. And so uh, once once we, st- so I mean, here this could be the setting for a, a dystopian story, right? Okay, so we want to solve this problem of misinformation on the internet. So now we're going to go in and um, and stifle speech whenever we, we think it's misinformation or whether we think it's inappropriate or shouldn't be said. And then in a close possible world, that leads you someplace really ugly. And so it's, and, and we're actually, this, this exact question has come up, right? So um, social media companies taking away content, taking content off their, off their platforms because it's identified as misinformation. I mean, initially that seems good to me, but in a close possible dystopian society, it, it, it could lead to something really bad. And I don't know the answer. Well, thank you so much for your insight on that. Um, that's all the questions we have for you today. Uh, I want to thank you again for taking the time out of your day to talk to us. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Our second segment sends us on an expedition to Mars in order to explore how our interest in this planet exposes the way we think about, understand, and respond to the impacts of globalization on our planet. 
and how fictions of Marge emerge out of a romantic desire to explore and to conquer the unknowability of our world. This is Peyton Wagner, here with Emma Smolik, Shaylee Shaw, and Jonathan Souza to discuss the ethics of technology regarding intergalactic space travel and globalization. For the past five weeks, the four of us have partaken in a class studying and analyzing the impacts of human innovation on our society's social structure, environment, and political system. Today, my peers and I wanted to focus our attention specifically on Mars, for our interest in this planet reveals the impacts of globalization on our world and the romantic desire to engage in space exploration and inhabit new planets. I'll get the ball rolling and start with a simple question. Why do we even want to colonize Mars? I think that one of the biggest problems or biggest reasons for moving is an exhaustion of our resources that we have here on Earth. Although Mars isn't exactly hopping with the resources at the moment either, it has the potential to offer us other resources in the future. A day that just passed us by was Earth Overshoot Day. This day marks the exhaustion of nature's resources for the year. This means that the consumption rate of resources exceeds the rate of regeneration. According to overshootday.org, This year's deficit is larger than most, with the date of exhaustion landing on August 22nd. With the depletion of resources and the lack of ability to regrow them, our supply of resources that we can sustainably regrow shrinks each year, making the overshoot day land closer and closer to the January 1st start date. When we finally deplete all of our resources, or enough of the resources to threaten the larger population, we will be forced to look elsewhere for other sources. With improvements in technology, Mars has become a potential candidate to provide the human population with other resources. Another related reason we're looking to Mars is climate change. Not only are we depleting our own resources, but in the process, we may be making our own planet inhospitable. We have already seen some of the devastating impacts of climate change can have. Most recently, the California fires, whose numbers and intensity have been affected by extreme heat waves and dry vegetation, have burned more than 1.25 million acres of land. Additionally, a Yale Environmental Studies group, while studying plant hardiness zones, found that by 2070, many habitats may become too hot for many plant and animal species to thrive. If we keep following the same path, the same might be true for humans. The number of places we would be able to thrive on Earth could begin to decrease. Our Earth could begin looking similar to the one depicted in The Machine Stops by Ian Forrester, where we would need a respirator to breathe because contact with the air could kill us. Colonizing Mars could be our new beginning, a chance to learn from our mistakes should the worst happen to Earth, or at the very least, an extension of human civilization. Yeah, between climate change and the exhaustion of resources, the future is looking pretty grim for Earth. I think we as humans know it too. Movies, books, plays, and other types of entertainment love depicting stories of a post-apocalyptic world and this trend is on the rise. Just off the top of my head, I can think of Wally, Mad Max, 2012. The list goes on, and I'm sure that anyone listening has heard of at least one of these. Earth is bound to become a barren wasteland, whether we kill it passively or actively with something like a nuclear war. This leaves us almost no choice but to look outwards, as it is almost inevitable that humans will need another home other than Earth in the distant future. Looking at the still early efforts being made by governments and companies like SpaceX, we see that they all have plans for Mars. Why Mars? Well, looking at a few important factors, we see that it is the closest rock planet to us that could support human life with as little as a spacesuit. With current technology, it would take about six months to travel there from Earth. While this seems like an incredibly long time, um, consider that much of the observable universe is measured in light years. This is an extremely small distance to travel on the intergalactic scale. As for the other inner rock planets, Mercury is too close to the sun, and Venus has surface temperatures of around 800 degrees Fahrenheit. Mars also has a day that closely resembles Earth's 24-hour day at about 24 hours and 37 minutes, which would keep things familiar to us. Another important factor is that Mars' atmosphere is mostly comprised of CO2, meaning we could grow plants on the surface by just compressing the atmosphere. There is also a decent amount of sunlight hitting the planet. It is relatively colder compared to Earth, but we can warm it up. And the list goes on when looking at key features we need in the planet to survive. 
With these known benefits of moving populations outside of Earth's atmosphere, what are some of the efforts that are being made to colonize other planets and celestial bodies? And what are some of the differences in the efforts being made between government-funded and privately-funded corporations? Currently in the United States, NASA is working with private companies and international partners to develop the technology that could get us to Mars. On May 30th of this year, NASA successfully launched their first crewed orbital spaceflight since 2011 on the SpaceX Falcon 9 craft. These astronauts will be joining their Russian counterparts on the ISS to study, among other things, biology and physiology to determine the viability of long-term life on space. NASA also has plans to send the first woman and the next man to the moon by 2024. The upcoming missions to the moon are the first step towards Mars because it will allow us to test new technology and equipment that could inform how we approach building a self-sustaining community on Mars. At the same time, private companies such as SpaceX are working on developing reusable launch systems and ways to get heavier crafts with more cargo all the way to Mars. Private companies are actually making great strides in the journey to Mars, surprisingly more so than NASA and other government-funded companies. This is due to funds provided by billionaires such as Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Currently, NASA is investing most of its funds into battling COVID-19, according to the Space Agency's website, deeming it more important to spend resources solving the global pandemic than venturing into space. Even before this pandemic, NASA was greatly underfunded by the United States. The total budget for the United States government is around $4 trillion. NASA's budget, however, is only $19 billion, which is not even enough money to reach the moon, let alone Mars. Thus, private companies will most likely reach Mars first. This is worrisome because private companies who are not partnered up with government agencies seem to be more interested in the commercial aspects of space instead of engaging in scientific exploration. Elon Musk literally shot a Tesla into space. What does that do? Similarly, Virgin Galactic offers space flights to tourists for around $250,000. This reminds me of the 1952 science fiction novel called The Space Merchants, where businesses hold much more political power than the government due to wealth and influence. These businesses convince people to explore space and contribute to tourism by traveling to planets such as Venus, even if the conditions on this planet are still dangerous. I fear that space travel is going to become incredibly commercialized, focusing more on making a dollar than on scientific discovery and human safety. With all these various efforts going on to make space more accessible and potentially habitable, how will this affect lawmaking on an interplanetary scale? And who has the authority to write such laws or guidelines? And how will these future laws change if we become a species capable of creating self-sustaining communities on planets other than our own? Well, in 1976, the Outer Space Treaty was signed stating that outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to national appropriation by claims of sovereignty, by means of use or occupation, or by any other means, and affirms that space is the province of all mankind. This means that space is free reign to anybody who has the means to explore outer space. Thus, NASA and SpaceX face competition when traveling to Mars. For example, Elon Musk again has stated that he wants to eventually establish a colony on Mars that is self-sustaining with a direct democracy. The laws in this colony would be simple and few in comparison to the amount of rules and regulations in the United States. Similarly, other countries have expressed interest in Mars. On July 19, 2020, the UAE launched an orbiter under the Mars Initiative. And on July 23, 2020, China launched a rover to Mars both hoping to get their personal stamp on this planet. In your response, you stated that space is the province of all mankind, and that the Outer Space Treaty signed in 1967 states no national appropriation by claims of sovereignty can be made. This really raised some questions in my mind that I thought would be worth pondering. Is it not Elon Musk's intention as a private company owner to have some sovereign rights or a majority say over any developments that his company establishes on Mars? What legal documents would need to be approved by the government here on Earth before such a project could be initiated or completed? If these rules in such a place were limited and simpler in comparison to the laws seen on Earth, would Mars not become a safe haven for those wanting to escape the law? Would a colony so far away being ruled by a foreign power create a similar situation to the one seen when settlers came to the Americas from England? 
and what would happen as other countries start developing their own colonies on Mars with separate ruling and laws. You bring up a lot of good questions, Emma. I think one possible solution to the issue of countries setting up their own separate settlements could be thinking about Mars the same way we think about Antarctica and international waters. It could be considered a global resource that no nation has the right to claim. However, Mars is a little more complicated because in addition to being a resource, it also tackles the issue of citizenship. Another possibility brought up in an essay by Jacob Hack Mizra of the Blue Marble State Institute of Science would be to liberate Mars from any controlling interests of Earth and allow Martian settlements to develop into a second independent instance of human civilization. I'm not sure how this would play out because the companies and governments that would be heading the missions would probably want to say in the outcome of the new civilization, but I think it's an interesting idea to consider. Instead of taking our conflicts and ideals from Earth and transplanting them to Mars, this could be an opportunity for humanity to reassess our values and start fresh. This leads me to the next topic of discussion. How do we foresee life on Mars affecting people from a health and social standpoint? What are the conditions on Mars compared to Earth? What can go wrong on the journey between the two? And how do we decide who gets to go? So Mars' surface is currently an overwhelming oxidizing environment and inhospitable to life, according to Methane on Mars and Habitability, Challenges and Responses, an article from the Astrobiology Journal. However, Mars does have potential to support life, as Jonathan hinted at previously. To sustain life, a planet needs to have an energy source, which can be provided by the sun and derived from photolysis of carbon dioxide and water, both available on Mars. Similarly, life requires the presence and the availability of elements. Mars does have several elements present on Earth, such as carbon and hydrogen, but there are also thought to be new elements available for discovery. Furthermore, Mars needs sources of water to maintain life. Recently, scientists have discovered widespread excess ice in the subsurface on Mars. To melt this ice, scientists suggest that greenhouse gas emissions such as methane and hydrogen gas could be used to increase the overall temperature on Mars. Global warming, which has become so harmful to Earth, could be used to make life possible on Mars. But this alone cannot provide enough water. Climate change takes years, and addition of greenhouse gases could also have dangerous consequences, such as contributing to air pollution. Mars may have potential, but it is not the same as our Earth. Our Going into more detail about the conditions on Mars, I found that according to the article Mars Compared to Earth, published on Earth Today, um, sorry, published on Universe Today, and written by Matt Williams, some of the conditions on Mars are very different to Earth's, while others are very similar. Like Peyton previously mentioned, the surface of Mars lacks liquid water. Another stark difference between the two planets is the very thin atmosphere that surrounds Mars in comparison to Earth's thick atmosphere. The atmospheric pressure on Mars is about 1% of the pressure on Earth at sea level. The composition of the Martian atmosphere is much different than Earth's as well. The Martian atmosphere is composed, composed mainly of carbon dioxide compared to Earth's nitrogen and oxygen-rich atmosphere. Because the atmosphere of Mars is so thin and Mars is located further from the sun, the conditions on Mars can be extremely variable. The temperatures near Mars's equator can sometimes reach 95 degrees Fahrenheit, but the heat can quickly escape in the absence of the sun. In contrast, the temperatures at the pole of the red planet can get as cold as negative 195 degrees Fahrenheit. The average temperature on Mars is negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit, which is still 40 degrees colder than the average temperature at the North and South Poles on Earth. After looking at some of the conditions found on Mars, what could possibly go wrong, right? Well, one of the serious problems that can arise when trying to colonize Mars includes the lack of water. Water is not only needed to keep humans hydrated, but is also needed for some very basic hygiene practices. A colony might quickly exhaust a small water resource that comes only from the ice found under the surface. Another issue that could pose a serious threat is the amount of asteroids that hit the surface of Mars each year. Because Mars's atmosphere is thinner than Earth's, it is less capable of burning up and slowing down asteroids. It is thought that an average of 200 asteroids hit the surface of Mars each year. What could this mean for potential sediments that we are trying to put on the red planet? Yet another potential issue for civilization on Mars is the lack of atmospheric pressure. A quick trip to the moon is one thing, but what happens when a group of people are living there permanently and rely on systems to protect them every day? 
how would we be able to protect a large population from a serious malfunction in the technology protecting them from the lack of atmospheric pressure, lack of oxygen, and extreme temperatures? An example of such a malfunction can be seen in the movie The Martian, directed by Ridley Scott. During the movie, there is a scene that shows a stabilizing port malfunctioning and exploding. The main character is luckily still in his suit, however the viewer can see that a breach in his suit is threatening his life. The viewer later sees the damage the explosion did to his crops and food source when it ripped the protective barrier surrounding them. The main character is left helpless, and is really lucky a current team in space decides to slingshot back to Mars to rescue him. What kind of actions can be taken to create a colony that is not so heavily reliant on risky technology for life support? Um, as far as who gets to go to space and other planets in the events in the events humans are able to commercialize space travel, no one has really tackled the question. As of now, only astronauts have really made it to space, and the basic physical requirements are relatively strict. Applicants must have 20-20 vision, fit a certain height range, along with many other qualifications. If applicants meet all of these basic qualifications, they must then pass a grueling fitness test. With all of this criteria in mind, many people would never even be considered as a candidate, let alone an astronaut. If spaceflight were to become commercialized, would criteria become broader than it currently is? If not, most of the world would never make it to space. I, I don't think requirements would be as strict in the future as the requirements I mentioned earlier, as they applied to government-funded space programs like NASA. Just looking at SpaceX's website, they claim to offer commercial flights for private passengers to both Earth and lunar orbit. However, they do not say much more than this, so it's hard to assume anyone can go. Factors such as age and health must play a vital role in determining if one is able to go, but there are no guidelines beyond those of NASA's and similar programs. Beyond physical requirements, there's the question of money. Spaceflight is expensive, no matter how you look at it. The technology and the costs associated with that make spaceflight possible today are very high in price. With this being the case, it seems as if only the wealthy will be able to afford such a journey. However, there is hope that things will get cheaper as we humans are very good at reducing costs and making things more efficient when it comes to technology. Someday, we could have tickets to space priced as so that your middle-class citizen could one day see space up close and personal. As far as how long this could be, who knows? As of now, we can only look outwards with hope from the comforts of our homes on Earth. In our final segment today, the next generation of technologists take on the form of science fiction itself. We'll submerge ourselves into the world of fiction in order to explore what and how that next generation of innovators imagines. I don't want to spoil it for you, so without another word, I'll turn my mic over to the next generation of technologists. Hello everyone, welcome to Blast from the Past, an auditory experience designed to simulate the antique entertainment programs on Earth called The Radio, in which we like to discuss technology, life, and other stuff from the past. Today's day is 12 Remus AE in the year 3018, and it's a beautiful sunny day on Mars with a comfortable temperature of 295 degrees Kelvin. I'm Apollo, and as always, I'm joined by our co-host Cassiopeia. Hello, it's me. And this is a special mini-show to cover the big news that just erupted today. Yeah, as you've likely heard by now, scientists have discovered an unknown entity in the outskirts of our colonies here on Mars that is supposedly spewing a substance that resembles old Earth-based viruses. Right, right. And uh, of course, we haven't had any real epidemics in almost a thousand years, but since this is our first encounter with something on Mars, there is some room for concern. But my assumption is really that it's something we can control this time around. Nevertheless, on today's minisode, we're actually going to take a look back at a thousand years to the year 2020 when the coronavirus pandemic occurred on Earth so that we can understand what level technology was at and what people's lives were like in such a scary time before bioimmunity technologies were prevalent. Yeah, we really wanted to get a good perspective of this moment in time because the 21st century famously saw the growth of artificial intelligence and biological engineering. So we are really curious about what life must have been like at the onset of these huge advancements. And to help deliver this perspective, we are really pleased to be joined by the renowned 
Rigel Estrella, the Chief Creative Officer of the Interplanetary Technology Corporation and the system's largest company for automation, cybernetics, biotech, entertainment, and consumer products. How are you doing, Rigel? Hi, Apollo and Cassiopeia. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you. Today, we'll be focusing on biotechnology and artificial intelligence based on the news of the newly discovered virus. First, we would like to discuss the past and future biotechnology and the ethical questions surrounding the subject. Is this new virus-like substance something to worry about? Yeah, so a lot was different in 2020 in terms of technology, of course. Technology has grown exponentially since the 21st century, and there have been hundreds of major breakthroughs in biotechnology since then, with vaccines and bioimmunity. So there really isn't anything to worry about with this substance. Well, it's really relieving to hear that from an expert in the field. Can you tell us the major developments in biotechnology from around that time? Well, some of the major breakthroughs that led to our current technology originated in the 21st century. For example, cloning technology was introduced at around that time, where it was mainly tested on animals, and now anything and anyone can be cloned. Also, more related to the subject at hand, people started researching and advancing vaccine technology and gene editing to make us immune to viruses, which led to how we live now without any need to worry about Earth-based viruses. But even though technology is much more advanced than it was in 2020, the ethical questions they raised back then are still relevant today. Gene editing was a major ethical issue back then because of consent or ethical freedom, and it's still being discussed today, almost a thousand years later. So what about gene editing? Uh, should parents be able to make a decision regarding editing their child's genes, or are those decisions better left to be made by professionals? As we all know, people are still against gene editing for children because the child doesn't have a choice in the matter. For life-threatening situations, it's fine, and this decision is best left to professionals. But when it comes to looks, people are against parents editing their children's genes because the children are unable to voice their opinion about it. Thank you. I think we can all agree that biotechnology has come a long way since the 2020s. Although we have had disease-preventing technology for quite some time, Back in 2020, it was still very difficult to contain the spread of viruses and bacteria. Now we can prevent the spread of viruses within a matter of days. But there are always new viruses cropping up, being that we are natural living beings. This is not a problem, however, with artificial... Oh, it looks like we have a caller a little earlier in the show than we were expecting. Hi, Luna, you are on the line. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Luna. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I really wanted to get on the line to ask some questions around your conversation about biotechnology. Um, so I hear what you're saying about gene editing for life-threatening conditions, but what if the condition is manageable and it's just an extra stressor in that person's life? Don't you think that erasing all abnormalities out of the genetic code will create a level of intolerance in our society, or maybe more of a need for perfection? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I understand your concern for the possible lack of tolerance gene editing could cause. However, we in the field believe that if there's a way for someone to improve their quality of life, they should have access to it. Additionally, the reality is that not everyone is going to go out of their way to have their child's genes examined and edited, so there will probably never be a complete riddance of people with genetic abnormalities. We also know that acquired mutations can also sometimes occur in people, so there's that too. Okay, I see your point. Um, I also wanted to ask you about planet Earth and what ended up happening to it after the year 2020. We know that the people who are not able to escape to Mars ended up dying there because of climate change. So what have we done to make sure that the same thing doesn't happen to us here? Well, the biggest change that we made from Earth was reducing the amount of energy that we use. On Mars, we only have public transportation, and everything is powered by the sun. On Earth, most people had their own forms of transportation and used man-made electricity to power everything, which caused about 70% of Earth's greenhouse gas emissions. While we did borrow the ideas of public transportation and using solar energy from Earth, we have taken those ideas much further and made them much more sustainable for a mass amount of people. Advances in battery and solar panel technology have made collecting and storing energy much more efficient than before, eliminating any need for man-made power generators. Another step that we took was stopping the production and consumption of true meat and dairy products. Each year on Earth, about 15% of the planet's greenhouse gases came from the meat and dairy industry.
but at the time, they needed to continue consuming those products in order to sustain its people. However, it was actually around the year 2020 that people on Earth figured out how to engineer an animal cell into cultured meat, which is what we have now since we have been able to greatly expand on that technology. So basically what I'm saying is that climate change is a thing of the past and the people of Mars have no need to worry about it. Good to know. Well, thanks for having me and answering my questions. Bye. Bye, Luna. Thank you for calling in. I'm glad those questions were brought up, and I'm glad the audience got to hear your answers them. It turned out to be very informative. Now for our next topic, which I just started to get into before the call. Artificial intelligence. Rigel, we all know that AI now drives our lives here on Mars, but back in 2020, this technology was still in its early stages. What can you tell us about these advancements? Yeah, I agree that artificial intelligence has come a long way since the 2020s. To help understand the role that AI plays in our lives, we should probably discuss what exactly AI is. So there are two types of AI, narrow or weak AI and general or strong AI. Narrow AI is designed to perform a specific task such as only internet searches or only driving a vehicle. In the early 2000s, we had communication devices called smartphones with built-in AI systems designed to help the user navigate the device. This is another good example of what narrow AI is. Back in 2020, the long-term goal of tech developers was to create general AI, which is what we have now. And it is what we usually refer to when we talk about AI, since narrow AI was phased out centuries ago. General AI outperforms humans at nearly every cognitive task, unlike narrow AI, which focuses on a specific task. An example of general AI would be the human-like androids, which drive our economy. Now, humans do not need to do the menial jobs that they had to do in the 2020s. We have androids operating food establishments, hospitals, stores, and a variety of other jobs in the service industry. Many of us even have AI in our homes, which helps us with tasks around the house. To put it another way, AI makes our lives easier. Thank you, Rigel. Now, your company has seen some backlash lately about your efforts with artificial intelligence, so right now we have a caller named Ariel who is going to come on and ask you some questions about the role of AI in our lives. So, uh, Ariel, you're on the line. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm Ariel. Um, Rigel, I heard about your comments regarding AI, and I would like to bring up the downsides of this technology. All of your press conferences discuss the positive impacts on our lives and how much easier our lives have become. But if AI plays such a huge role in our everyday lives compared to 2020, what right should we, as average citizens, have to question and evaluate the technology that is making decisions on our behalf? Like with any new technology, AI has its benefits and risks. We take everything into account when developing new technology, and we can ensure that nothing bad will happen as long as the proper precautions are taken. So we guarantee that our products will only make life easier for everyone. But of course, citizens like yourself are free to do as you please. We are not forcing anyone to use the technology that we develop, but at the same time, we're not gonna stop developing new technology. There are always risks involved with developing new technology, but if people just stopped innovating just because there might be some slim chance that something could go wrong, we would not be where we are today in terms of technological advancement. Some people in 2020 thought advancing AI could be detrimental to society, because they were making assumptions on technology that didn't even exist yet. But look how that turned out. AI just makes everyone's lives better now. I agree with you, Rigel, but there are risks that may outweigh the benefits. For example, what if the AI is programmed to do something devastating? Are you talking about autonomous weapons? What are autonomous weapons? Well, autonomous weapons are AI systems that are programmed to kill when in the wrong hands, these weapons could easily cost thousands of lives. Like we saw before we left Earth, an AI arms race led to a war that resulted in mass casualties. This, of course, was the catalyst for World War III. It was difficult to control this AI technology due to its inability to be simply shut down by humans. Losing control of AI is a major risk, and we'll continue to see these mistakes made in the future. But mistakes always lead to progress. After the war, for example, we started programming remote kill switches into every AI that we develop, which we can use if necessary. What if the AI is programmed to do something beneficial, but it develops a destructive method for achieving this goal? Well, this can happen whenever we fail to fully align our goals with that of AI, which is very difficult, even at our current technological capability. Although we have achieved this daunting task, 
This wasn't the case hundreds of years ago. For example, in 2100, if you asked your vehicle to take you to the airport as fast as possible, it might have caused multiple collisions and destruction along the way, doing not what you wanted, but literally what you asked for. If a super intelligent system was tasked with an ambitious geoengineering project, it would have caused a lot of destruction to our Earth's ecosystem as a side effect, and probably would have seen human attempts to stop it as a threat. Now we have advanced well past that territory, but this is a major risk with AI technology, even before self-driving vehicles were invented. I'm seeing a common theme here with AI. It seems as if a major concern with advanced AI is not malevolence, but competence? Yeah, you're absolutely right. A super intelligent AI would be extremely good at accomplishing its goals. And if those goals aren't specific enough, we will have a problem. For example, if you ask AI to prevent people from eating more than their rationed food, it might kill the people trying to eat more food rather than blocking the food off from them. So to have an AI perform tasks for you, you must provide very specific instructions without leaving anything out. Otherwise, there could be unintended consequences, such as people being injured. This is what our AI safety research team is for, to prevent humans from being harmed. Okay, I see now that AI safety research is your top priority. I appreciate your honesty. And I appreciate your questions, Ariel. I'm sure that there are many other people like you out there who question the ethics behind AI. As the head of a technology corporation, I always consider the ethical implications before they cause potential problems and remain humble in assessing the stability and integrity of the technology. I hope I cleared some things up for you. Yes, you did. Thank you, Rigel. It was nice having you on the show, Ariel. You know, she brought up some really good points about the role that big corporations like ITC play in the integration of technology in our lives. Yeah, she did. I think we need to remember that AI has the potential to be more intelligent than any human. Hence, we still do not have a way to predict exactly how it will behave. Thinking about the future of AI in 2020, it's difficult to use past developments in technology as a basis because at that point, we had never really created anything that has the ability to knowingly or unknowingly outsmart us. Humans controlled Earth and now Mars, not because we are the biggest, strongest, and fastest, but because we are the most intelligent. Thus, there was an important question raised during this time. If we are no longer the most intelligent, are we guaranteed to remain in control? Well, our civilization will continue to flourish as long as we keep up with the growing power of technology and the wisdom in which we manage it. I think it's important to note that the best way to win this race is not to hold back growing developments in technology, but to accelerate the insight needed to control it. Right. So it is very important to support AI safety research as our technological-based society continues to advance. Yes, of course. All right. Well, uh, hey, Rigel, our time is just about finished for our mini-episode today, and uh, we really want to appreciate you coming in to talk to us and our audience. It was an honor hearing your insights on these ever-relevant topics in advancing technology. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, that's going to do it for us today, folks. And we really hope that we're able to spend uh, some time shedding some light on how much society has changed since the virus of the 2000s, thanks to our developments in technology. For one, I'm very glad that we can feel confident about our ability to deal with this anomaly, whatever it turns out to be. And after everything we learned today, I certainly wish that our ancestors back then were able to feel protected by their technology as we are today. Yeah, if there's something we should really take away from what we learned today is that we should try to embrace the good sides of our new technologies, as scary as they may seem. Because once we learn to be responsible with them, clearly they can do wonders for us. Absolutely. And uh, I actually think that's a great end card for today, Cassiopeia. So, uh, hey, that's a blast from the past signing off. See you next time, everyone. Bye. See you next time.